As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. I remember as a teenager growing up, every once in a while my mother would look at me and she would say, what's going to become of you? And I would say, I don't know, Ma. But that word become, it's a wonderful word. It describes us. Who are we becoming? Because that's the whole life journey. We're arriving somewhere. It's mysterious. We have faith that it's a wonderful place. We have faith that we discover it here. But in our search of becoming, we accomplish a lot of things. And to be alive at this time is to experience different accomplishments that are mind-boggling. If we look at 50,000 years of human history, more things have taken place in the last two lifetimes than that previous 50,000 years. As a matter of fact, if you take the 50,000 years and you divide them by lifetimes of somewhere between 60 and 80 years, there's 800 of them. And out of those 800 lifetimes, humanity spent 650 lifetimes in the cave. In the last four lifetimes, we were able to measure time precisely. In the last two lifetimes, we were able to use the electric motor. In the last two lifetimes, we've seen the world of labor change from agriculture 
to the factories in the city, to white-collar work. And the last two lifetimes, the arrival of the electrical light bulb came into our homes. In the area of transportation, 6,000 BC, the fastest you could go on a camel was eight miles an hour for a great distance. It was not until 3,000 years later, with the invention of the chariot, did that eight miles grow to 20 miles an hour. In our, in the last two lifetimes, the Wright brothers flew that plane. In the last two lifetimes, we now have jet travel. In the last two lifetimes, Ford invented the car. Now we're going to have driverless cars, something I would have never thought of. I had trouble with cable and understanding everyone would have their own computer. And then in our lifetime, we've seen rockets approach speed of 4,000 miles an hour. We've seen capsules circle the Earth with a person inside them at 18,000 miles an hour and landing on the moon. In the areas of communication, in the last 70 lifetimes, we had the written word. But in the last two lifetimes, we developed the telegram, the telephone, the radio, the television, conference calling, emails, cell phones, internet, blogs, social networking, smartphones, podcast, and cloud computing. That's a lot. In the 1970s, there was a book called Future Shock. And they were talking about a time when there's so much change going on that people are in shock. I don't think we're that bad, but I think sometimes we don't appreciate the dramatic changes we've experienced and how close they've been if we haven't experienced all of them. Christianity also went under some dramatic changes. Some things stayed the same. And I'll start with that thing that stays the same. That's not a good word, that thing. What stays the same in Christianity is that the person of Christ reveals to us the love of the Father. The invisible love made visible. And he also reveals to us as a human person the perfect response to the Father's love. We're kind of at a crossroads, I think, with our Christian faith. It's moving a little from the west to the southern part of the world, to South America, to Africa, to parts of Asia. And it's a different type. I mean, it's the same Christianity with that heart of it where Christ reveals the Father and we see the perfect response. But our Christianity in the West was more conceptual. In the last 500 years, it developed in the context of the Reformation. Our theological reflection was kind of narrowed down to Scripture, tradition. And sometimes we mistake those things for the actual faith. 
biblical scholarship arrives? Will we understand the scriptures and the way they were created? And the scriptures are central to our faith. I remember about 25 years ago, there was a devout theologian, Christian theologian, and he made this prediction. He said, the devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will cease to be anything at all. And I think he's right. I think it's come to fruition. And to demystify the word mystic, it means experience. To experience God. Not to begin with a dogma or a formula or a theological pretext, but to begin with an experience. Like John Wesley. A powerful experience. And we read about that. I think I quoted it last year to you, where he's alone and he's listening to Luther's critique of St. Paul and the justification of faith. And he has all these struggles. And then all of a sudden he says, I felt something warm. Something wonderful happened. I knew that Christ forgave me. I knew that God was loving. <laughs> and after that experience, he made the whole world his church. So caught on fire was he that he preached everywhere. And his homilies, his talks, his sermons were always on experience and our relationship with Christ. And I think in our time, that's where we have to go. I think the church is now, the heart of the church will be the scripture, the Bible, especially the New Testament. Do you know something? I've been here three years. And with your pastor, Peter Hay, I had a study and went through the Old Testament twice. In a book, we were there for like 28 weeks. And then he offered a course on the New Testament. And he went from the beginning to the end. That doesn't happen too often in churches. But it's so necessary. We're a people of the book. God has taken on human flesh and is passed on to us through this word. And this word is alive. It speaks to us. And the future church will encourage people to research the scriptures. We have a common tradition now all religious denominations, and that's biblical scholarship. To understand how these scriptures were created. In the last two lifetimes, the first 1900 years of Christianity, we looked at the Bible the same way 
we see it in a painting from the Middle Ages. There's a guy with a pen sitting there. Could be Mark, Luke, John. And there's a bird, the Holy Spirit, whispering in his ear. And he's writing down. And then came along this theologian named Bultmann. In our lifetime, the last two lifetimes. And he said, this is an old document. We have to understand it so it will reach the modern era. So it will do to us what it's intended to do. And he understood it in a beautiful way that makes it more magnificent. Because in those first 1900 years, we emphasize Christ as God. We imposed on him all of the powers of being of the Father. And he was almost like God playing a human. We were never convinced that he really became a human just like us for that purpose to reveal the love of the Father and to show us how to respond to it. And it's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. We should be as intimate with them as we are with our own family history. And that's the future. And it's a challenge. But that's where we encounter his presence. And that presence in our spiritual life is Trinitarian. John Wesley embraced the Trinity. When the disciples said to our Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. He gave us the perfect prayer. He gave us the context for it. He gave us a new heart. The disciples watched him pray. They heard him talk about the Father all the time. They heard his great prayer. Father, that they may be one as we are one. And then this prayer comes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom is a relationship. It's not a place. When we watch Jesus' life, he was baptized. And you remember one of the Gospels, John said, oh, we don't have to do this. And Jesus said, do it. And he wanted us to see. And what happened when he was baptized, a voice from the heavens said, this is my beloved son. And right away that spirit brought him into the desert. And he had to find out, how am I going to live out my life as the beloved? The temptations he had were temptations that would lead him to greatness, to worldly greatness. All the kingdoms would be his. But he decided, I'm going to live my life as the Abba experience. That's what's going to give me my identity. We see that challenge coming in today's gospel with the wealthy man who approaches Jesus. 
What must I do to enter eternal life? Good teacher, right away, here's our Lord. Why are you calling me good? Only the Father's good. And he lists the commandments. And the young man or the man says, I obey those. And then Jesus says, there's one more thing you have to do. Go sell everything, give it to the poor, and follow me. This is similar to when he says, blessed are the poor. Then in another gospel he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And to put some extreme words to this, cursed are the rich. And cursed are the rich in spirit. Our Lord teaches us to dispossess. The story before this gospel was of the young man. Of, oh, I'm sorry, was of children coming to him, and the disciples stopped them. And Jesus said, let them come to me, because the kingdom is theirs. What did he see in the child that he wants to tell us about? He saw in the child an identity that was dependent on the parents. He wants us to have an identity that's dependent on him. Wesley must have gone awful deep for him to come up out of that experience and say, he forgave my sins. He forgave my sins. And sin exists. As wonderful as all those things I listed we did, we can take that power we have, that creativity, and misuse it. In our lifetime, we see the advent of the atom bomb. We can destroy ourselves. We see the advent of the challenges of climate change. We see a disconnect from that child we're called to be with the father. And it's not childness. We really can't embrace God until we know how much we need him. And that comes in degrees. And then the story after this one was our Lord predicts his passion. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to be buried in three days. He's going to rise up. And the disciples who hear him, they're talking amongst themselves, which one's the greater? And they ask him, who can sit on your right and who can sit on your left? They looked at him as a king. They didn't understand his power. And when I read that part of the scriptures, I thought of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read this book several years ago, and something always stayed in my mind, just like the, the one I told you about, unless the future Christian is a mystic, he'll cease to be nothing. The other thing I remember from Bonhoeffer, who was a martyr, died in prison during World War II at the hands of the Nazis, he said, when Christ bids a person 
He calls them to come and die. That sounds horrible. But what are we dying to? All of our surrogate loves. All of our independence that pushes him away. All of our racism. All of our hatred. Those are the things that have to die. And then we have a clear view of him, the resurrected one, because there really is no death. The only things that die are the things that shouldn't be alive. Anything outside his will, any type of hatred, any type of racism. And that sounds so idealistic and naive. But look where we are as a world. We as a community, mysterious, one of the things that does good is prayer, to pray the scriptures. In some way that has an effect on the world. We have a God who loves us, and in the person of Christ, we see this God. We know this God. And in the person of Christ, we see our response how intimate we should be with his story.